When I reread this book, one of the things that struck me was, in one sense, it's not that radical of a thesis. God is sovereign, the civil magistrate is not. There is real, but limited and derivative power and authority. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord, and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and I'm the pastor of Preaching Theology at Occoquan Bible Church, a local church in Northern Virginia. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Christ Overall. And today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Brad Green on his recent article, A Christian Manifesto Revisited. For those who may not know Dr. Bradley Green, Dr. Green is professor of theological studies at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He's also professor of philosophy and theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He is the author of several articles and books, including The Gospel and the Mind, Recovering and Shaping the Intellectual Life, and Augustine, His Life and Impact. Brad is also a member of First Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee, where he works with college students, and he is a founding member of Christ Overall and someone who will continue to be a regular contributor to our website and podcast. So, Brad, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you, David. Glad you're here, brother. Joining us as well is Steve Wellham, another professor of theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and another regular contributor to Christ Overall. If you've listened to our last interview, you heard Steve and Trent Hunter and I talk about the Lordship of Christ. And in a couple of weeks, we'll also get to hear Steve and his upcoming piece on the life and thought of Francis Schaeffer. But today, we're going to think together about what Brad has written regarding Francis Schaeffer's important book, A Christian Manifesto. So, Steve, welcome back. Glad to be here, and especially on such an important subject. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to dig right in and look at this article that Brad has written. I want to read a couple opening sentences and then ask Brad for you to give some of the historical context of the writing of the book. So you, you begin saying, Francis Schaeffer wrote a Christian manifesto in 1981. That would have been three years before he died in 1984. In 1981, Ronald Reagan had been in office for less than a year. The Supreme Court had ruled on Roe versus Wade some eight years prior, in the United States had also pulled out of Vietnam in 1973. And really, those are some weighty events in the history leading up to that book. I am one who was born just before that, 1980, and my parents told me often about the events of the miracle on ice with America beating the Russians, and I remember that movie and the different clips leading up to the events of that time. So just some weighty and challenging years in our country. So Brett, just give us some of the historical context leading up to the writing of this book. It might help put it into its perspective. Sure. Thanks, David. It is a thrill to be here. So I'm 15 years older than you. So in 1980, Reagan is elected. He'll take office, of course, in January of 81. Like I say in the piece, Roe v. Wade in 73, the Supreme Court decision on prayer in 1963. And to put this in a little context, World War II had just ended 35 years before 1980. So some of that is pretty close in the background. A lot of interesting writing comes out after World War II, whether it's Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind or Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences. People on the left and right, conservatives, liberals, are all wrestling with what's happened such that 
what was supposed to be the Christian century had experienced two world wars. 1950s, things seem maybe okay in some ways, but by 1980, we've been through the 60s and the 70s, so the various revolutions of the 60s and the drug cultures. So when Schaefer writes his book in 1981, it's a pretty unique time. And I'll say this as well, is in many ways, evangelicals, had been, in some sense, at least more conservatives, had been not, as we might say, politically motivated, at least not as a group or at least not as an organized way. And so when Schaefer comes on the scene, 1968 is his first published book, and he dies in 84. But when he comes on the scene, it is a time, particularly with Roe v. Wade in the backdrop, where Christians are asking very fundamental questions about statecraft. So when Schaefer, at the end of his life, writes on kind of the evangelical church, his books that are more explicitly pro-life, whatever happened to the human race, and a Christian manifesto, he's turning his focus to what do we think about the nature of political order and what are proper parameters for civil government and how should the Christian relate to civil government? Yeah, that's helpful. Certainly applies to some of the things that we're asking and considering our day and age. Steve, what would you add to just some of the historical context to Francis Schaeffer writing this book in the early 80s? Yeah, I mean, Brad summarized a lot of material. I think the 60s, that post-World War II generation, right, to coming back from the war, wanting to have peace and build prosperity. Then you have the tumultuous 60s, massive change of ideas. And Schaefer saw that this had a long history to it, that even though we had gone through the wars and so on, the worldviews that had gone all the way back into the 1800s that were showing fruit and uh, the rise of the modernism and the Darwinism. And some of that had been dealt with in terms of even Hitler's regime in Germany and some of that which affected them. But, you know, the 1960s, the free speech movement that really wasn't free speech, the hippie revolution, the sexual revolution. I mean, I think Schaefer saw in all of this ideas have consequences and became quite alarmed with the Roe v. Wade decision that uh, human life was being devalued, that people were acting on their worldviews that were showing themselves out very practically in the political sphere, in terms of government, to the loss of law. We had been governed by the Constitution, the influence of Christianity in terms of moral norms. I mean, you can't help but compare Leave It to Beaver and Andy Griffith and Mayberry with the change of the 1960s and the civil rights movements. and But what's undergirding these massive changes? What kind of law? What kind of influence? There was a change of morality, particularly with the sexual revolution. So all of that is going on. Uh, Roe v. Wade is the tip of the iceberg of that. And Schaefer's having to wrestle with what happens when our governments don't have a basis for law anymore. How do Christians interact with them? What's the role of Christians in the public sphere? How, what kind of voice do we have to avoid some of our quietism and pietism that has affected so much of the evangelical world? I mean, that sets the context to all of this as well. So that's crucial to remember as he's thinking about the Christian's responsibility in society. 
Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And just even Schaefer's own ministry, beginning as a pastor in America, going to Europe and just seeing things that were kind of ahead culturally over there and then returning again, seeing where America was. Brad, you mentioned the fact that he is writing to a deal with law and statecraft and a political theology. This is certainly where his book, Christian Manifesto, fits in part in his corpus of 23 books that he wrote from 1968 to the end of his life. But Brad, I wonder if you could make a distinction for us between the engagement of evangelicals doing politics and something that you bring up of political theology. Maybe just give a definition of what political theology is and how that's distinctive from engaging in politics. So certainly there's a relationship there, but there's also a distinction. Could you help us to think about that? Sure. It's interesting because the last 10 years, at least in the academy, a lot of things and work on political theology, in one sense, we're simply dealing with, according to scripture, according to classical, particularly Protestant from our perspective, but according to classical theology, what should one think about the nature of political order and what are proper expectations of or parameters for civil government and how might a Christian think about not just out of influence, but just what is biblically, theologically, what is the proper role, limitations of the state? We could just say civil government or the civil magistrate. So when I think of political theology, I'm simply thinking, if we think in terms of biblical systematic theology construct or our system, our theological vision, within that theological structure that we try to work out from primarily scripture, a part of that needs to be what then is the role of civil government and what is my relationship to civil government? So I think when I think of political theology, I'm thinking of those nexus of issues. What is the role of the state? What is not the role of the state? What is the relationship between the different authorities and different governments, if we want to use those kind of categories of individual, family, local, a state, national, a church as a government, the family as a government, those kind of things. And it's a pretty fascinating area of study because Christians have so many resources. And arguably, when Schaefer came along, while there was a rich tradition, think of Kuiper, and Calvin, etc., and Augustine, long tradition. But I wonder if evangelicals weren't caught a bit flat-footed in the 70s and 80s. And so Falwell comes along, and I'm not going to disparage Falwell now. He did it in his own way, a yeoman's effort. We're all supposed to say something mean. I'm just not going to. He did his best, and in many ways, good for him. But I think we were a bit caught flat-footed, and Schaefer was working out his political theology in a Christian manifesto. Yeah, you make mention of the fact that he paints in broad brushstrokes, and many were influenced by him, and maybe even provoked many to engage these things in ways that they hadn't before. In the last decade, you mentioned just the rise of public theology, political theology, a care for recognizing what the church's role is in the state, what the church and state relationships are. It seems that that needs to be recovered in some ways. Brad, you've done work on Augustine. How does Schaefer, does he build on Augustine? Are there differences there? What's the relationship historically between the two? Yeah, it's a great question. Schaefer chose to turn to Samuel Rutherford and Witherspoon, indirectly Calvin. And he kind of appealed to general Reformation insights. Augustine, of course, is, you know, some 1100 years before that and a different era, a different time. So I think you could say Schaefer is Augustinian in his broad outlook. And I reread A Christian Manifesto, Every Jot and Tittle, for the preparation. I don't remember him doing much with Augustine. 
but I would say he's generally Augustinian in that he takes the doctrine of sin seriously. He is working out limitations on political authority. He, Augustine has a great line in the city of God where he says, so robbers come along and band together and they steal. And what is the state but a kind of official organized band of robbers, right? So if you're wanting, if you're wanting to be a libertarian or something, you might find a quote or two from Augustine to put in your arsenal. But there is that in Augustine. There's a concern about the limitation of power. He may not have been always consistent, but he was aware of the limitation of power. But also, Augustine was working out, how do you bring about justice? And Augustine has a great line where he says, Rome, you know, the, the pagans are complaining about the Christian, the Christianization of the empire, ostensibly, and the Christian influence. But Augustine, part of his apologia, his apologetic is that Rome wasn't able to secure justice on their own terms. Rome was not able to secure justice within its own constellation of gods and philosophies, etc. But he makes a very provocative point and says, true justice will only come when Christ is the ruler of the republic. Now, Schaefer doesn't quite say that, but Schaefer is saying we do have to think Christianly about the nature of political order. So I would call him a broad Augustinian in that sense. That's helpful. Yeah, and you listed just a number of things there from the city of God to Samuel Rutherford and his work in Lex Rex and John Witherspoon. I think uh, Kevin DeYoung has done some work on Witherspoon recently and certainly thinking about Schaefer's work, Christian Manifesto, and even more recently, something like Glenn Sunshine's Lane Leviathan would be a good list of books to read on just some of these political theology. Steve, what would you add or what is unique about Schaefer's political theology from your view? What would you want to include here? Yeah, I think he's building on a whole Christian heritage. I think he's a Reformation man. So he starts back there. He works with a very clear church-state distinction. He hasn't blended them. He's also working with the idea, Brad mentioned Samuel Rutherford and Lex Rex, right? He's building off of the Magna Carta. He's building off of the fact that uh, with that Lex Rex, that the law is over the king. And so the government is ordained by God. It, you know, Romans 13, God has put the government in its place, yet uh, governing rulers are under the law of God. They're not laws to themselves. And that insight, of course, as it came over particularly into the American context, would mean that our rulers are governed by laws, a constitution, that they can't make it up. It's not arbitrary law. And so I think what really concerns him as he looks at what's happening in society is the rise of arbitrary law. So that uh, tied back to the Enlightenment, particularly with the Darwinian view and so on, he he sees that society, the Western society that was built off of a Christian base, it wasn't a Christian nation or so on, we'll probably get into that conversation, yet it was influenced by Christian morality. It protected human dignity, it protected human sexuality, it protected the family, but with arbitrary law coming, all of that is beginning to crumble, and he acknowledges that no civilization can exist without some form of law. 
And he works through the balance between form and freedom, that we have great freedom, he says, with the influence of Christianity because it's within a law base. It gives us guidance and direction, yet there's freedom within that. But if we lose the governing rule of Christian morality in the nation, then we will have chaos. And then he works that out in terms of what would be the political implications. How do governments run unless there is a law that's governing them? And what will that law be? And in the midst of that, he's saying, Christians, we've inherited this society. We have been influenced by Christianity. We can speak into it. And this is for the good of society that we uphold these moral values because it actually protects human life and human dignity and the family and so on. So, I mean, those are governing points of his political theology. And particularly, he's concerned, as Brad said, with the impact of sin. He's very, very concerned that we have limited government, that no government take total control. So law governing government, God's law, and also that we do not put absolute power into people's hands. Yeah, I think anyone who reads A Christian Manifesto, and actually that'll be something that's available on our website this month, and that's what we'll be addressing throughout the month. Anyone who reads that may be, I don't know, surprised by some of the things that he says, just challenging authority, because there seems to be, and again, this arbitrary power and this arbitrary authority and this law that is placed in the person who is in power and not in a governing law above that are certainly going back to the Lord. Uh, But it seems as though there has been a sense in which that this idea of submitting to those who are in authority really needs to be brought back among Christians. And so I want to read something here and ask you guys to think about it before we come to talk a little bit more about America's founding and some of the things that Schaefer talks about in the book about that. Brad, you write that Schaefer does not explicate in detail how scripture would or should function to inform contemporary statecraft. His point, for good or for ill, is more basic. The civil magistrate is accountable to God, and the Christian is not obligated to obey the civil magistrate when the magistrate commands disobedience to God's word or forbids obedience to God's word. In short, Schaefer was trying to outline, if in a cursory manner, a Christian paradigm for how to relate to civil rulers, especially when the civil ruler has become not just ambivalent, but hostile to Christian belief and practice. And so certainly there's been lots of debate and discussion about how we as Christians should have responded to things with regards to COVID and some of the last few years. And I'm just wondering, do you think Christians today are doing well with this? Or do we need to learn this again? Wow. Okay. How long do we have, David? When I reread this book, one of the things that struck me was, in one sense, it's not that radical of a thesis. You've outlined it well. God is sovereign. The civil magistrate is not. There is real but limited and derivative power and authority. I, like many folks, came through a libertarian phase, many more conservative folks. But I think the Christian has to say there's real governmental power in of itself. It's not a problem or it's not, it's sinful. If Augustine's right, it came about because of sin. It's real, but it's derivative and it's limited. So the question naturally arises, (laughs) what are the limitations? And so when Paul writes in Romans 13, like you outlined, we know the civil magistrate is ordained, we submit, but there's limitations to that. So to me, we've hit a major crisis in the summer of 20, where if you see something you don't like, even Christians, well, you just protest. And some of those protests are illegal. You're blocking traffic, you're engaging in public disorder. But when Schaefer wrote, it was very particular. There is a time to disobey, but it's not 
violent. It's not just disobeying any law or just walking and blocking traffic or whatever. It is disobeying a particular law because that law is either commanding disobedience or not allowing obedience. Augustine argued that Christians are the best citizens because we see citizenship as a, a kind of divine calling or a spiritual duty given the Lord Jesus, as well as an apostolic command in Romans 13. I was a bit depressed and, like many of us, frustrated in the summer of 20 by many the response of many of my fellow believers. I was not encouraged. I was not particularly encouraged by some of our leaders. I think they should have stood up and said some things, and it didn't get said. And then I kind of looked around and said, why don't you say something? So that's part of the reason we're doing this, right, is it takes some work to work out exactly how to think about when the magistrate is doing its job rightly and when it's not. And we disagree at times with the magistrate, and there are times where we disobey, but it's not a carte blanche freedom to just be lawless. It's a controlled, measured, well-thought-out, well-prayed-out times to disobey. So I'm not encouraged by the last two to five years. Yeah, I was in a, a meeting of pastors not long ago where one of the pastors basically said, Romans 13, simpliciter, right? Which was basically because God has put people in authority and power, we must do what they say period. And I think reading Schaefer helps us think, no, there are qualifications to that. The text itself, there are qualifications to that, and faithful commentaries will show that as well. And I think reading this book helps to give some perspective that hasn't been there spoken well in public spaces. So, Steve, I have a question for you, and that is, thinking about the evangelical landscape today, who needs to read A Christian Manifesto? And then who might be someone to push back against some of the things that Schaefer's saying here? Yeah, well, I think every Christian needs to read a Christian manifesto because it's clearly laying out responsibilities as the church and its relationship to the state. That's a crucial matter. We have to think carefully about what the church is and how we ought to function in the world and also how God has established the state and the limits and role and purpose of the state. The Christian manifesto helps us think through that very, very, very important church-state relationship. And especially now that the state and Schaefer saw this and I don't think it's gotten any better since he wrote in 1981 is that the state is becoming governed by arbitrary law. It's being governed by that which is not Christian morality, and it's becoming hostile to the church. So we have to be proactive. So Schaefer was writing way ahead of his time to deal with the issues of his day over the life issues, particularly and the loss of the sanctity of life that we were seeing in society and the role of the government. But those issues have gotten far more extensive, far more invasive. And so the whole church needs to read this to think ahead of what are we going to face in the future? What are we facing presently? What are we going to face in the future? Wrestling with these matters of what's the state's role? What's the limits to that role? What's the role of the church? How should we think about potentially civil disobedience. I mean, that has to be done now in terms of our thinking. So this is why all churches, all Christians, we can't let this go by sort of another day, year. We have to be thinking about these matters now. Those who would push back, those who would push back are those who are happy to quote Romans 13 and treat that as if, well, God has put government in place. There's no time ever for the church to push back, except, you know, possibly when you can't preach the gospel. And so that's a 
a clear case that we have in the book of Acts. But beyond that, we are to trust our government leaders. We are to trust the establishments that we have. They are God-given, and all of that is true, that they are God-given. But those who would push back are those who have quite a bit of confidence that in a fallen world that the state will not harm us or will not do that which is contrary to God's law, not just in specific areas of preaching the gospel, but the sanctity of life, the destruction of marriage. I mean, those two are creational norms that are for our good, and the role of the state is to uphold those creational norms. Those are the ones who I think would push back against us, and we then have to talk with them and say, what is the role of the state? What are the limitations of the state? What should the church be doing? And have that conversation, because it's a very important one to have. Yeah, that's helpful. That's really helpful. Yeah, and I think that even just kind of sets up the next question where, Brad, in your article, you get into some of the issues of the founding of America. That's certainly something that Schaefer goes back to. And you just bring up the work of Mark Knoll and Nathan Hatch and George Marsden in their search for Christian America, which came two years after that. And I think you do a really good job just kind of laying out some of the discussion there. And I think probably some of the debate that might be here is, okay, what is the role that Christianity has played in America's founding? So, Brad, maybe just open-ended question. How does Schaefer address that? How does Schaefer bring that forward? And how should we think about America as a Christian nation, or at least one that has been deeply influenced by Christianity? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So I am, like you mentioned, a little older than you, David. I think evangelicals, at least of a more conservative stripe, experienced a bit of a shell game being played against them back in the 70s and 80s. On the one hand, the criticism of evangelicals was, hey, you're just pietist and you're out trying to get people saved and why aren't you concerned about the social order and questions of justice? And then once evangelicals did get involved, at least evangelicals of more conservative stripe, so whether it's Falwell or Tim LaHaye or Schaefer, all of a sudden then the criticism was, well, you all are theocrats or you're trying to shove your religion down other people's throat, right? So it wasn't fair because you got Ron Sider coming out in the early age with rich Christians in an age of hunger. So I'm not trying to cast aspersion on this character. But the thesis of the book, one of the arguments he would make is things like, because of the Jubilee Laws and the book of Leviticus, the UN should control food prices. So you have this, let's call it a reconstructionism of the left, you might, or a theonomy of the left, whatever you want to call it. So it was a bit unfair so evangelicals got criticized for not being politically active, but then when they did get politically active, they were chastised for not having the right politics, right? So as far as the founding and those kind of questions, Schaefer had a pretty sophisticated or pretty, a pretty modest thing. He says, essentially, you have fundamental worldview clash. You have something like a sort of theistic Christian, Judeo-Christian general worldview that is dissipating, and you've got its clash with something like a naturalistic worldview. So really it was a clash between something like a Christian understanding God, man, the world, the nature of reality and the nature of morality, versus naturalism. And I think that survives the Noel, Mars, and Hatch critique. When you actually read the Noel, Mars, and Hatch critique, they'll make these qualifications. Yeah, okay, so Schaefer thinks Witherspoon is reliant on Samuel Rutherford. If you go look at Witherspoon's collected works, there's nothing about Rutherford. Okay, fair enough. So even if, say, 
even if Schaefer was wrong on the exact lineage of who was reading whom when, I'm still convinced if you go and read the colonial charters and if you read the work of the 16, 1700s, there's a massive Christian influence. And Noel, Mars, and Hatch, as I quote in the essay, they're happy to say, like most scholars are quite happy to say, there was a significant influence of general Christian thought on the founding. Their bugaboo, I think, was a bit almost a dispensational understanding. It's not fair to say. And understanding maybe linked to dispensationalism, where America is simply the new Israel. And there's kind of this quid pro quo understanding of things. But let's stop and be Christians for a second. If you're living in the United States, shouldn't we all, in a sense, want to bless the nations and bless our neighbors, like Israel was called to bless all the nations? So there doesn't have to be anything wrong with, hey, I want to be a light in my neighborhood. I want to be salt and light in Jackson, Tennessee. Does that mean I want us to be a Christian America? Well, dang it. Mm-hmm. I want to evangelize yeah. my neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. opposed to it, a Christian. I kind of want, you know, am I going to begrudge the Lord if he saves all my neighbors and we begin to influence politics? Well, no. you know. So I, I think the Noel, Mars, and Hatch and one, their critique in one sense is not that radical, and I think Schaefer's basic paradigm, in one sense, was pretty basic. So that's my short, somewhat short critique, but we can keep talking. Yeah, that'll be a conversation to pick up in full another day. <laughs> Steve, what would you add to that subject? Yeah, I mean, I think Schaefer saw God's hand in human history, right? That the gospel had come into the world, that the gospel then expanded as it did all around the world, but particularly in the West. So the West was greatly influenced by Christianity. Again, I think he held to a clear church-state distinction, yet he would often talk about the primary benefits of the gospel and the secondary benefits. Primary was dealing with conversion, where people were brought into the church. They came to know Christ. They were Christians. Yet the secondary, even tertiary benefits, would be the salt and light effect of Christians in the culture. And in the West, he acknowledged that Christianity— Uh, founded many of the institutions, the universities. I mean, it's pretty hard to miss this. The European Union tried to rewrite their founding uh, when it started a number of years ago and tried to eliminate all Christian history, but that's impossible. Yet, as you came to America, he would say it's not a Christian nation per se, but greatly influenced by Christian morality, Christian principles. He would see this in the way that the balance of powers were set up. He would compare often the French Revolution with the American Revolution. The French Revolution did not believe in human depravity. It did not separate powers, but the American Revolution built on its sort of covenant structures with England and violation of the covenant. You set up a balance of powers because it was afraid of human sinfulness. So he, these are the influences that come upon America that were from Christianity, and he saw these as good things. He saw that the Christian morality was for the good of people because it was grounded in creation order the sanctity of life and the family. And he says, when you lose these things, it is not for the good of humanity. It's not good for people. It will lead to their destruction. And that's what he began to see. And so he says, every country has to be governed by law. We've been governed by that. 
that. It's been influenced by Christianity, and uh, he saw that God's good law and good purposes are for the good of people in general, whether it's for Christians or non-Christians alike. But it wasn't an imposing of certain Old Testament standards tied to the nation of Israel or specific commands to the church tied to the country. It was tied to the big issues of life and marriage and family tied to creation order, and that's what he saw was strongly influential in America. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, you know, just as it is an offensive doctrine to believe that there is no way of salvation except through Jesus Christ, it's an offensive doctrine in our world today to say that only the wisdom of God is going to lead to human flourishing because people want to live in a plastic world that they're deciding their things for themselves. And we see this with the transgender movement. We see this with all kinds of things. And yet there is a moral order that God has put in place, that families are the basic building block of the world, that it is best to have a mother and a father with children in their home and children to grow up there and all these things of salt and light that come out of the wisdom of the word of God, we would want that for our neighbors and not to force that upon them, but to persuade them that this is best because this is true. And it comes back to the whole reason that we are seeking to bring this ministry to bear and this, that is the Lordship of Christ over all parts of life. So we can keep talking about that. I, I want to bring this to a close with a few rapid fire questions here. Brad, you do a really good job in your article of bringing some reflections from Schaefer into the present today. So I'll start with you. Schaefer and statism. What what do we need to know there with regards to Schaefer and statism? Yeah, I, in, in short, Schaefer was concerned that statism as an ideology would become so all-encompassing, it would if effectively mute Christian influence, mute the importance of influence of the church, and it becomes something of an idol, where the church becomes an all-encompassing reality that effectively renders other institutions irrelevant or unimportant or not allowed to be a part of the discussion. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Don't you think also, Brad, that with statism, because of his sort of lex rex, right, if nations are governed by arbitrary law, then eventually a human autonomy centers itself in some form of law, which ultimately is the state. So the only uh, way to counter statism where humans are put at the center of things is ultimately lex rex, right? We have to be under God's law, which is for our good. And so that was his great fear as well, that arbitrary law and being put in the hands of human individuals in replacement of the standard of God's law would greatly lead to harm and ultimately tyranny. Yeah, well said. Well said. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think oftentimes when we think of idolatry as it is taught in churches, it's often very personal and private kinds of idols that are there. Maybe it's money, maybe it's sex, maybe it's family, maybe it's children, whatever the case may be. But really, the state and the security that the state provides is also a kind of idolatry that he certainly saw and we're certainly seeing around us today. Yeah, yeah, well said. Steve, what about Schaefer and the evangelical church. Certainly he talks about that in multiple books, but what was Schaefer have to say to us about the evangelical church? Well, he says a lot to us, right? You know, one thing is he says, wake up, don't be asleep. Don't just simply be going through the motions. We live in a whole change of society that is a loss of truth, the rise of the state, the imposition of arbitrary power. All of these things are going to affect you. And so you are the only ones who have the truth of the gospel, the benefits for the larger society, the tyranny that he saw rising uh, will only bring harm to not just the church, but to everyone. And so he says, wake up church. He was also concerned 
that the church had adopted the values of the larger society. You hear this over and over again where he said the values of our society are personal peace and affluence and we'll be willing to give up all of our rights, all of our freedom, as long as we say, government, give us personal peace. Keep my 401k up. Give me my health. Give me my welfare. Give me my whatever. And he says, unfortunately, the church has the same two values of personal peace and affluence, and we will be willing to capitulate to tyrannies and to powers over us without standing if they keep promising that uh, we can go about the status quo. So he was always very very, very concerned that the church would not stand for truth, that she would not be the church, that she would not be salt and light in the world, that it would constantly cave to the pressures of the society so that he would say to the church, don't do that. Stand on the truth of the God's word. Stand on the truth of the gospel. Amen. Yeah. Challenging words, even painful words, but necessary words. Brad, I'm going to give you the last question, last subject here, and we'll close out. Schaefer and Courage. What does Schaefer have to say to us today to be courageous? Certainly what Steve just said relates to that, but Schaefer and courage. Yeah, it's great. He himself was quite happy to be disliked. He decided to be pugnacious on the pro-life issue, even if that ended up meaning he was castigated as being right-wing or whatever. So I think uh, having worked at institutions my whole life, I've been at Union 25 years, I think it's amazing what can happen if you just try to speak the truth as plainly and as clearly as you can. And I think Schaefer said the most ultimate of the final apologetic is love. I think he would say love along with truth. Speaking truth candidly, and I think, you know, I'm in my 50s, Steve in his 50s, but being able at our stage just speak the truth as well as you can and as plainly as you can. I spoke at a conference and several of the guys came after his younger guy saying, thank you for just speaking plainly. And they were encouraged because we are influenced by our teacher. For you and me, it's Carson Woodbridge, the whole gamut, Carl Henry. Schaefer encourages us to speak the truth in love, speak it plainly and be willing not to be liked and be willing to lose your job, be willing to be on the outs of this or that group. So let's go forth and do what Schaefer did. Yeah, brother. That's a sobering word, but a really important one for us to take today. Well, Brad and Steve, I thank you for the time that you've given to this and just passing on your own personal care and ministry that you've been influenced with Francis Schaefer. To those listening today, I thank you as well for listening to the Christ Overall podcast. Uh, If the discussion here has led to more interest to want to read Francis Schaefer's work, A Christian Manifesto, I'd encourage you to go to our website where you can download a free PDF to read that. That's only during the month of October. You can also read Brad Green's piece, A Christian Manifesto Revisited, where many things we've talked about about today will be looked at in finer detail. Steve's long-form piece will be coming later this month, looking at the life and ministry, the life and thought of Francis Schaeffer. And we will have actually a shorter piece on each of the chapters of A Christian Manifesto. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Overall, please sign up for our newsletter that goes out every month. You can also give to the work that we are doing here to continue to show Christ as Lord overall to all of the nations. So until next time, remember Christ is overall. And so in all things, let us exalt Christ.